0: The silliness of the concept of the brazen misappropriator, which they talked about. And basically, O'Hagan would not have had any fraud or deception had he just told the company, the Grand Met, I guess in this case, that he was going to trade and just said, you know, screw you.
1: Legislation changes month to month, year to year. But over the last century, the changes have been astounding. Join Karen Woody and her students from Washington and Lee University to dig into 100 years of insider trading law. Welcome back to the next episode of Classroom Insiders. This is the podcast where we dive into the evolution and the arc of insider trading regulation over the past century. My name is Karen Woody. I'm the host of this podcast and I'm joined here today by one of my students. I'm going to have him introduce yourself. Derek, tell us a little bit about you and your background.
0: Well, I'm a 2L and I don't really have a typical background of the average law student. I used to do canine search and rescue A lot of people kind of mistake that for and think that I was rescuing dogs, but no, I worked with my dog and we found people that are alive for quite some time. He is still with me. He's retired now, but he's adapted into the the family pet role because I have a two-year-old and he's become fast friends with him. So that's pretty much where I'm at now, balancing law school and the dog and the baby and the wife. He is often mistaken for a Belgian Malinois. But he is, in fact, a German shepherd who comes from a a working line.
1: And where were you doing these search and rescue operations?
0: Mostly in San Mateo and Marin, California, with the sheriff's offices there.
1: That's fascinating. And you're right, not maybe the typical background for a number of law students. So what brought you to law school?
0: Boomerang, my dog, had to retire because of a medical condition, and I wasn't about to get a new dog when I still had him at a relatively young age. And then I went into the family business for a little while, and it was very unfulfilling. So I figured I'd follow in my father's footsteps and go into the law and hopefully make a difference somehow.
1: Oh, great. Well, good. And so here you are finding yourself in an insider trading seminar and we are going to discuss the substance of what we've been discussing in that class over the course of the semester. So let's take a minute and switch gears and talk about insider trading. What we are going to talk about is mostly about this idea of misappropriation theory, which I think the listeners might need a little background and explanation about. But before we get to that, let's talk a little bit about What brought us here? We have talked in previous episodes about this concept of the disclose or abstain theory, meaning anyone who had possession of non-public material information had to essentially abstain from trading on it because disclosure was nearly an impossibility. But essentially, if it was not yet public, you couldn't trade on it. And we saw the shift and sort of the narrowing of that idea from Justice Powell and importantly, sort of in his, one of the first shifts that significantly narrowed that idea was his Chiarella decision. So first, actually, let's have a couple moments. I want to ask you what you know about maybe Justice Powell before we get into Chiarella. So do you have any sort of background or information about who Justice Powell was?
0: Yeah. First of all, he's a WNL and l alum, so I, I should mention that right off the bat. But in terms of his role on the court, Aside from one other justice, who's the chairman of the SEC, Powell probably came to the court with more experience in the corporate law world than any of the other justices. He was a staunch anti-communist, so I'm a big fan. And he felt strongly that business people were generally good and he would give them the benefit of the doubt if it pushed came to shove.
1: Okay. And you think that has informed his thinking about insider trading regulation?
0: I do, I definitely do. He felt that the SEC was overreaching. He felt duty bound to constrain them.
1: Okay. And we see that in this Chiarella opinion, which we have spent some time on in in previous episodes, but I think it really lays the foundation for what we will talk about today. So tell us a little bit about that case and this sort of first swing back from the court of really, as you say, sort of cabining in the SEC's the authority and and the scope of which they could use to bring insider trading cases. Tell us a little about this case.
0: Well, this case involved a financial printer, I believe, Pandic Press. And when I say financial printer, I mean that he worked at a company that would publish announcements of takeover bids and things of that nature. And he gleaned from his role at the company who the targets of these takeovers would be. And he decided that it would be a good idea to take that information and begin trading on it. And Powell decided to reel in the scope of the SEC's enforcement power, which had in Texas Gulf Sulphur, basically gone to an equal access type theory. And in this case, Powell decided that he would narrow the focus here a bit and based his theory on a fiduciary duty, and he felt that Congress should have taken steps. And since they didn't, he would reel things in, limit the equal access type theory only to cases. So the disclosure abstain rule would only apply to those who had a fiduciary duty.
1: I think that's kind of what we've been discussing in previous episodes. That that tracks what we've been discussing. This idea that under Texas Gulf Sulphur Well, what did you think equal access meant under Texas Gulf Sulphur?
0: I think, like, Powell probably did, that socialism was creeping in a bit here, and it really had the potential for interfering with legitimate trading action, and I always err on the side of not getting people in trouble when it's a a murky area, so I agree with him on that there.
1: Okay. Okay. Meaning that there should be limitations to when you can bring enforcement actions around insider trading.
0: Yes, it shouldn't just be based on equal access because the reality of things is just that no one will ever have equal access to information all across the board.
1: That seems to me to track what we talked about in the very first class, which was this idea that under that strong versus repeat case, and the idea before we even see 10B5 or any other federal securities laws, be stood up. We have this idea that at least in face-to-face transactions and then even on the market, which we saw in the Goodwin case, this idea that not everyone is ever going to have the exact same set of facts or information when you enter into any contract or any other transaction. And so the idea that maybe equal access is the ideal, maybe that's ideal, but that's just not practical in reality. And you know, that's not a very pragmatic approach. And it does seem that Powell moves us back to that place, which is no one will ever maybe have true equal access to information. And if we require that, we won't have a lot of people trading. And so he does say, well, like in strong versus repeat somewhat, although it's not as if he cites that, but just this same idea of it's only a problem for you to not disclose something you know and the other party doesn't know if you have a duty to disclose it. So absent that duty, you don't have to show all of your cards all the time. That's what a negotiation is or maybe any other transaction is. So I think that's right. So our defendant in that case, Chiarella, what happens to him?
0: He is convicted by the lower court, but Powell ends up overturning that, basically for the reasons you just said, because there was no fiduciary duty.
1: Okay, but what I do think is interesting about that Chiarella case is... One could potentially argue that he did have a duty. The duty didn't run maybe to the companies in which he traded, which I think was typically how we understood where the duty needed to lie. Meaning I have a duty to tell you, the counterparty or the person I'm transacting with or the shareholders, all that concept of who you are transacting with is where that duty runs to. But he did have maybe some requirements here. And one could argue he had a duty to his employer to not break the codes and trade on the information he was. There must have been maybe even some policy where he probably shouldn't have been doing that because we're not denying that he is trading on inside information. So what does the court do with that? Do they consider that or how do we hold that also in our minds at the same time?
0: I'd actually say what you just said sort of tracks with Justice Burger's dissent here and he would have convicted Chiarella on the basis of this but his theory as he saw it relied on a proper jury instruction which had been left out and in Chiarella's case the jury wasn't instructed to find any specific duty and was just instructed to sort of find that anyone or to the markets could be the focus of that duty And he did not have success there. Berger did not.
1: Right. He's in the dissent in Chiarella. He was sort of saying, I think there's enough here maybe to show that he did breach some duty. But even then, I think that Berger dissent would have also been a shift somewhat in the law that we've seen, meaning we didn't have a lot of cases up until that point that suggested, as we will get to today, misappropriation, that the duty could be maybe not to the person with whom you are transacting. Or the companies that you're trading the stock in, meaning that you are violating a duty to that institution or entity. Instead, it could be just sort of any breach of duty, which I think is what we're going to get to and why O'Hagan seems to be very much a broadening of the insider trading regulation. Before we get there, though, I think it's important to discuss another case where we do see this idea of misappropriation get teed up to the court, but sort of remain somewhat in limbo, and that is the Carpenter case, which we discussed last episode, but I think a little review is helpful here because it sets the stage for O'Hagan, which we will talk about today. Tell me what you know about the Carpenter case and even Justice Powell's role in that as well. What do you know about that?
0: So if I recall correctly, the actual incident that led to the litigation was in the early 70s, and the decision wasn't handed down until later in the early, early 80s. But it involved a Wall Street Journal reporter who wrote a financial column heard on the street, I believe. Mm -hmm. And it basically advised its readers as to potentially good stock investments. And it did have the power to move the market. So if something received positive coverage in his column, you could anticipate that for the most part, the companies he discussed would go up. And he entered into a scheme with a couple of traders, and he passed along the information that he was gonna be publishing before it went to print, and they traded on the basis of that information. But interestingly here, the only party that was sort of wrong would have been the Wall Street Journal, And that in and of itself was only because they had uh, relatively recently promulgated a confidentiality policy that held that people in his position weren't allowed to disseminate that information.
1: This is fascinating because I actually think we don't have to spend this whole time talking about Carpenter, but I think there's so much to unpack in Carpenter. But I'm glad you mentioned that about the policy maybe being... Sort of the breach of duty is a breach of this policy of confidentiality. Because I think what we discussed last episode about Carpenter, albeit fairly briefly, is that Carpenter, which we will talk about maybe in a second, ends up going up to the Supreme Court and they split on the breach of duty on the 10B5 issue. But they are unanimous about a mail and wire fraud conviction on this idea of embezzlement theory, sort of that they had taken from the Wall Street Journal their property, which was information. I'm glad you mentioned that because I do. it highlights that maybe you could see these as two separate acts in some way, meaning a breach of duty by virtue of breaching this confidentiality policy, and then separately, a sort of separate charge of essentially theft or embezzlement, which I think is fascinating because those things are often intertwined. This idea that we have a 10b5 insider trading, and we can often tack on a mail and wire fraud charge with it as well. That's just my own curiosity. But actually, tell us what did happen in Carpenter. I know I've given a little bit of preview, but where does it go from there?
0: Yeah, so this one's a bit of a doozy. When it gets to the Supreme Court on petition of Richard Sir- 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 certierari, and the petition is denied. But Powell felt very strongly that the lower court finding was in direct contravention of his earlier jurisprudence in Shirella that we just discussed, and also the follow-up case of Dirks, And he passed along to his colleagues a draft memo arguing to grant the writ. And he successfully lobbied, I believe, O'Connor and Rehnquist to join that, but it was never actually published. Because apparently it was so convincing, Brennan and Scalia also signed on and that they voted to grant the writ. And then unfortunately, after all that, Powell retired. (laughs) So in the end, after swaying the justices, he he retires and there's a 4-4 split. And the lower court ruling is thus upheld.
1: Right. So the Second Circuit says we're going to allow this to go forward under misappropriation, that that's enough here. And Carpenter files an appeal, you know, tries to seek review by the Supreme Court, and he's denied initially. Powell runs around and lobbies his colleagues and gets them to re-vote on cert and convinces some of them. And so they do get the four votes to grant cert. And I think you're right, that in the interim, he retires. But you're right that in his lobbying to grant CERT, he made a very full-throated argument about why it should be granted CERT, meaning and he explained that misappropriation theory was an extension of insider trading regulation that was beyond the scope maybe of the SEC's authority or certainly beyond the existing understanding of insider trading regulation. So what's amazing there is we do know how Powell would have voted. He made that clear in the memo and yet wasn't on the bench. So he's not the fifth vote to sway this to be a 5-4, in which case we would have never seen the light of day for misappropriation theory. So instead, you're right. So the 4-4 split means effectively that that Second Circuit opinion stands by default without maybe a lot of precedential value, because there's not much that is binding really in terms of the tie at the court. And so it's a little bit nebulous for a bit in terms of the status of insider trading and especially on misappropriation theory. And so what is happening in the circuits? Are the circuits sort of all lined up with being for misappropriation theory at this point or not? I, up until we get to what ends up being this next deciding case, was there a reason the court needed to take up O'Hagan? Was there a difference among the circuits?
0: There was. In Newman, I believe The one of the circuit courts did actually follow... Powell's jurisprudence and dismissed some charges. It was the Second Circuit, I apologize. In there, a securities trader and some bankers misappropriated confidential information concerning proposed mergers and acquisitions that was entrusted to their employers by corporate clients. And the Second Circuit found that this was a 10B, 5 can be violation. But at the same time that was going on, I believe like the fourth and eighth circuits had some differing interpretations because the SEC really pushed hard here to sort of not let their the scope of their authority be circumscribed.
1: Okay. All right. So then, you know, how do we then get to what happens about a decade later where it does seem like the court weighs back in on misappropriation theory? Tell us about this case that is really your expertise in some ways. Tell us about it. How did it get in front of the court? Give us the background facts of O'Hagan.
0: Yeah, so unfortunately, with Powell's retirement, he was unable to do, to quote, deal a a death blow to misappropriation theory. And it reared its head again in a uh, 1997, I believe, opinion from Ruth Bader Ginsburg. In that case, the facts were... Basically, a lawyer, partner at a law firm, I believe in Minneapolis, who was not representing the clients in question, overheard his colleagues discussing the fact that Grand Met would be acquiring Pillsbury in the future. And he decided that it would be a good idea to use that information to start trading himself. And I believe he made something over $4 million doing that. And
1: what uh, did you trade in? Which company? was Did you trade in Grand Met or in Pillsbury?
0: Pillsbury, because they were the focus of the impending takeover.
1: Pillsbury was not the client of the law firm. Is that right?
0: That's right. The client was Grand Met.
1: All right. Interesting. Okay. And then what happens?
0: Well, Ginsburg sort of embraced mis- misappropriation theory completely. She claimed that misappropriation theory was complementary to the classical theory that Powell had espoused. But in reality, uh, the misappropriation theory really went much, much further and swallowed the the whale, so to speak. And she upheld O'Hagan's conviction on the theory that O'Hagan breached a duty of loyalty to the source of the information, which in this case would have been the law firm and she also said it was in connection with the purchase or sale of a security. So those two requirements were met. But essentially, it overruled Powell's jurisprudence from my point of view, and it sort of went back to like a general fairness type principle.
1: Right. I mean, we're getting a little bit, we're swinging the pendulum a little bit back again toward, not all the way to disclosure or abstain, but you're right, a general idea that this seemed unfair. And I think we, it's worth unpacking why this was different and what is new. So there are a couple things I think that we should unpack of why this is a different theory. So why could this not have been a classical insider trading as we've seen before under 10B5?
0: There was no fiduciary duty, which Powell described as a relationship of trust and confidence to Grand Met. And O'Hagan wasn't, in the traditional sense, an insider of the company. So without that, there was really no basis under Powell's theory to uh, charge
1: him. Right. No fiduciary duty to Pillsbury, really, I think is what you mean. So if you even acknowledge that maybe O'Hagan, because he's not on the case, Maybe has no fiduciary duty to grand Matt, that probably is not a winning argument because he's a member of a law firm, and that alone creates you know he's an agent there on their behalf, even though you know he's a little bit removed because he's not on the case and he's not actually privy to this information technically so there's that one problem there, but then the bigger leap is that second one, which is the information that he uses and he trades and the company in which he trades isn't the company that the fiduciary duty runs to, meaning it's the target company. They don't represent Pillsbury. I mean, maybe you could also make the argument that there's a duty there as well. And there's a whole section of the O'Hagan case that deals with the SEC's Rule 14 E3 about tender offers and sort of exactly this idea, which is, of course, you now have insider information about another company. Shouldn't we create a broader sort of circle of trust about, you know, that in which duties could run all the way to that? And so that's also an interesting wrinkle that maybe there's enough that we could shoehorn this still somewhat under almost a more classical theory, which is there are duties that run to a lot of these parties. But misappropriation kind of moves us in a different direction from that and sort of says, well, the duty might not actually need to be to the company in which you are trading. And it's still enough that he breached some duty. And here, I think Ginsburg is saying, He breached a duty to the source of the information, which is maybe different than what we've seen before. So it would be hard to maybe bring this case under, as you said, the pal jurisprudence of this nest, like requirement of a fiduciary duty. Again, under this idea that I don't have to disclose that I have inside information, unless sort of this counterpart, I have a duty to tell that person. And he's, you know, I have some duty that requires me to say what I know. And here he's, there's no duty to this, company in which you have no relationship. It is the target company. It's, it's different. So I do think this is certainly a shift and a shift, as you say, away from where PAL certainly was headed. So first, what is your impression of this case? Do you think this was an appropriate interpretation of 10b-5 or was this more judicial activism? You know, What do you think about, especially given what we have seen in the courts, really single-handedly creating insider trading regulation out of whole cloth? Because it's definitely not coming from the statute. What do you think about, well, that and then particularly in light of this case?
0: Oh, God, don't encourage me to call RBG an activist. But yeah, that's exactly what she is. She was a judicial activist.
1: I would say I appreciate that. But you could argue Powell was as well.
0: You could, because like you said, all of it is sort of court created. So that's certainly a fair point to make. But I think the big problem for me was sort of the silliness of the concept of the brazen misappropriator, which they talked about. And basically, O'Hagan would not have had any fraud or deception had he just told the company, the Grand Met, I guess in this case, that he was going to trade and just said you know screw you.
1: So yeah, say a little more about that. What is a brazen misappropriator? What what does that mean?
0: I would describe it as somebody who basically tells the party involved that he's going to trade whatever the hell they say.
1: That is because 10b5 requires proof of deception. Why would that not be problematic in its own right? If I say, I'm going to take that information, I know it's inside information, I'm going to trade on it.
0: Because there's no deception in that case. You are not doing anything that that isn't known if you make it clear that you're doing it. Just practically, it sort of makes the whole decision kind of silly because you can undermine it if you really want in a kind of a crazy way.
1: Yeah, I think this is... Getting to really the meat of why insider trading regulation is a morass, and it's tricky because there are so many different threads and theories and really underlying concepts of law that we are trying to cobble together. So we have this idea of breach of fiduciary duty, that's certainly part of it. and then wrapped into that, an example of a breach of fiduciary duty may be a deceptive practice or certainly deceptive theft or embezzlement. But all these and in- you know, can be teased apart, and then they they almost don't maybe hold up on their own. And so it's interesting you say that if we're worried about one equal access to information, that's one entire idea, and we really want that to be why we regulate this. We've stepped away from that. From when Powell takes the bench and just sort of reminds us all that no one's all going to have equal access to information. We should only get people in trouble if they had to tell you it and they didn't. Meaning this is a fraud based idea. And then we get to misappropriation, which gets us even like if you're shady toward sort of any player in this scene, then we're going to take that deception, use it to meet the element of deception, even if what you end up trading in is a little bit separate from what that breach of duty was. So we already get this expansion there. But then, as you point out, the logical next step is if you're not deceptive about that, then it's not a problem. Meaning, if deception is the linchpin that turns this, And if you're not deceptive, and I think that's brought up in maybe one of the dissents, I'm not sure, this idea that if had just been clear and transparent, like, yeah, I'm taking that inside information, I'm trading on it, then ironically, you would not be in trouble because you weren't deceptive. And so that, again, does away with maybe one of the purposes, which is you shouldn't maybe be trading on inside information, but then sometimes you can't. Misappropriation theory does a lot to maybe still muddy the waters about what it is we're worried about, what it is we're concerned about with insider trading, what we even think the basis of the problem is. Is it theft? Is it unfair practices? Is it not that you're somehow manipulating markets because you have some ability to trade on things other market participants don't know? All of that gets weirdly less clear even with this. I'm willing to be convinced otherwise, but I think the brazen misappropriator concept is a perfect example of why it's like we lose a little of the forest for the trees here, and so it gets less and less clear. I don't know if you have thoughts on that or if you agree with that or not.
0: I do agree with you there almost wholeheartedly. Another issue that I had with this case was stated in Scalia's dissent. There was also a sense written by Thomas and joined by Rehnquist. But Scalia focused on the rule of lenity. And the fact of the matter is, when this was decided, Chiarella and Dirks were still essentially in effect. So you're criminalizing activity here that was not, in fact, criminal under the existing common law.
1: I think that's a really important point. It goes back to our earlier comment about. If Powell and Ginsburg are equally judicial activists here, the result of Powell's activism was narrowing the scope of, in those cases, criminal or in civil liability for Dirks. And so meaning, sure, that he's moving the law to a new place, but the result of that is that someone is not going to jail. Whereas this is a different situation, which is now an expansion of the law that didn't exist before, at least not in any sort of, Precedential way, and it results in someone going to jail. And I think that's why, you know, Scalia certainly harps on this rule of lenity. And tell me actually, what is the rule of lenity?
0: Yeah, that rule applies when there's some ambiguity in the law. And in those instances, the court is obliged to favor the defendant because taking away one's liberty is obviously not a trivial matter. And essentially, it was sort of a judicially created ex post facto law being applied here where activity that wasn't formally illegal is now being punished by a court that just decided to make it illegal.
1: Yeah. So lenity, one of the oldest sort of equitable principles, like, speaks exactly to that. I think that's right. I think that's the direction Scalia was going. in. this is a due process problem. This is a lenity problem meaning if this is now the law that this is a burden on the defendant because it wasn't something that you might have been on notice of that you that was illegal prior to this because this is almost this new shift in the law and he will now go to jail because of this i do think what's interesting and we saw in carpenter and a little here also these are both criminal cases which is why lenity maybe would apply because again we're talking about taking someone's liberty away putting them potentially in prison what is interesting, and we don't have to spend much time on this, but I do think it's interesting given that we've talked about criminal insider trading and the provision that is a sister provision to mail and wire fraud that came later, came in out of Sarbanes-Oxley, and that's 18 U.S.C. 1348. And I bring this up only to mention that like, A.B., similar to Carpenter, O'Hagan would be in the same place through a mail and wire conviction, in which case maybe you're here anyway. But the idea that we now have the ability to bring 10b5 under misappropriation theory to that same place, I think you're right. It was definitely a shift and was definitely one that, in this case, meant O'Hagan was certainly going to go to prison. And so I think that's that was at least the theory that Scalia was pushing. I think Ginsburg would say, you know, as we've seen in chi and Carpenter, this isn't necessarily a new idea. And we obviously have clear deceptive practices in connection to purchase or sale of securities. We can actually meet 10b5 elements.
0: And I should note that the Thomas dissent which with the chief justice dissented because they specifically found that the fraud was there, but it wasn't in connection with securities trading.
1: That's a really good point. The fraud is to his law firm, maybe, you know, so... That's an interesting angle on this as well. And there's so much we could talk about that on that topic as well. And a number of cases in securities law that really try to dive into that one important clause in connection with, probably outside the scope of what we can talk about today and would take more time than maybe we have. So I'll just ask one final question here before we wrap up, Derek. And that is, what do you think about this? What do you think should be the regulation of insider trading? What regime should we take? We've seen now a number of different attempts, a number of different stripes of how the SEC or the courts or otherwise have tried to get their arms around this. What is your take? If you could create a new regime or piggyback on an old one, what do you think is the best way to handle this, if at all?
0: So I guess when I started the semester, I was pretty much opposed to regulating insider trading. And I would say that still That feeling still colors my views. But I think after flirting with how far regulation should go, if at all, I think the Dirk standard is probably the most pragmatic approach. And I'm okay with Powell's views there because it's less nebulous than the Ginsburg approach. And I believe that the Ginsburg standard is rife with potential for abuse in the lower courts to further expand the SEC's enforcement powers. So I think Dirks gets to the heart of insider trading and prescribes the most flamboyant or dishonorable types of, of insider trading as we think of insider trading today. So I, I like the Dirks standard.
1: Okay. So Breach of fiduciary duty but not a misappropriation breach. The breach of duty runs to involved in the trade.
0: Exactly. It was silly that in Carpenter the defendant's long, I believe, jail sentence there resulted specifically because the Wall Street Journal had a confidentiality policy. And if they hadn't, then there would have been nothing.
1: Interesting. Well, much food for thought and I very much appreciate you coming on to talk to me about this. I've learned a lot. If you don't have, if you have some final parting thoughts for our listeners or anyone else, I welcome them and I'm happy to hear them. If not, I wanted to thank you for coming on and being a part of this. It's been a delight to have you in the class and to bring new insights and theories. So I appreciate it.
0: Yeah, I would just note that Professor Woody is a great professor and really taught us a lot. So you can't go wrong listening to her opine on insider trading law.
1: All right, I'll allow the shameless flattery here. It's great. Um, well, thanks, <laughs> thanks, Derek, and everyone. I thank you for tuning in. I hope you look forward to our final episode in the next few weeks.